So I am uh, conducting this obsidian experiment, Joe. Yeah? Yeah, I uh, have messed around with task management in obsidian previously, but uh, I am all in this time. So no other task management tools at all. 100% in obsidian, done. Well, we're getting to that point. Uh, I'm still <laughs> using okay. do a little bit because I don't trust myself quite yet. Uh-huh. Yep. Do is a gold app. Like if they ever stop making it because of some of Apple's whatever, I'm going to be very upset. Like I love that app. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really good. Um but I was inspired by a recent uh Cal Newport podcast episode where he okay. was talking about the essential lists that you need. And I realized that those lists could basically serve as the foundation for a pretty killer task management system in Obsidian using Obsidian tasks. And uh, I have been crafting. I started with the six that he listed, and then I added a few additional uh, queries. And uh, I sent you a screenshot. But what I've got is basically um, a, a Canvas dashboard with these different colored boxes with these different queries like ready, back burner, waiting to discuss, clarify, this month, scheduled, later, someday, unscheduled, and then inbox. And this is like every view I can possibly think of. I'm not going to need all of these day to day. But uh, you can craft some pretty cool queries with the uh, Obsidian Tasks plugin. And um, so that's where I started is I, I created these all as individual notes. And then once I got the queries the way I wanted them, I actually put them inside of these these cards on the Obsidian Canvas and color-coded them. And uh, I really like the way that <laughs> this looks. And I think I'm really going to like the way that this works, uh, although I'm still kind of getting everything in here. But This is really cool. So you've got ready, back burner. So I assume like ready is for today. Back burner is kind of like a when you get to it sort of thing. Yeah, so the way this is uh, set up, Ready and Backburner were ones that, that Cal had mentioned. So Ready is basically things that are able to be actioned on in the next week. Okay. And that's kind of the basis already for the way that I was doing weekly planning using the Periodic Notes plugin. is showing me everything that's, that's due this week or scheduled this week is the other part of, uh, of that particular query. Uh, the... Backburner is simply a list of tasks that have a backburner tag. And uh, that backburner, I know we've talked about that previously and how you kind of thought like backburner is kind of a useless context. <laughs> yes. Especially like I, I think of it as almost useless when you also have a later someday list. Like what is the difference between those two? Like that's my hang up with it. I get it. Like you've committed to one, you've not committed to the other. It just seems redundant. Yeah, so in the, the way that I'm thinking about this, and Backburner was specifically the term that Cal used, so I feel enabled by him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But Backburner, in my opinion, is like, this isn't the stuff that needs to get done this week, but it's almost like on deck. It's coming shortly. That's the when the stuff that I'm focused on gets done, this is the stuff that's going to take its place. And uh, Cal advocates for checking these lists at the beginning and at the end of every day. And I think there's value in kind of seeing like what's up next. And that's kind of what, what that is. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why it could be there. It could be that uh, I, I need to make a decision about something that's on there, or it could just be like it's not scheduled time for that thing yet. 
which is why I assigned it the tag and not just a date range. Uh, this, the waiting, discuss, and clarify are all also tag-based. Okay. Um, and the way I'm doing those is like I just have a task and I take it, you know, back burner and it shows up in that list. Uh, same thing with waiting, but with waiting, I will also tag a person because uh, I think a version of this down the road is there's going to be a note for the person. And that's where I'll keep like all of the meeting notes for, you know, if I do coaching with Matt Raglan, I've got a Matt Raglan note and I just add a new entry for the different dates and add the notes there. But at the top of that, have that query of things that are tagged, you know, waiting or, or to, dis, uh, to discuss actually, that's kind of the one I'm describing right now. Sorry, I got these mixed up. Um, to discuss is like, I need to talk to the person about this, but waiting also uh, could be like, I'm going into a meeting and I need to know like, this is the, the type of answers that I, I need to need to get. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the, the basis of it here. And I'm sure, you know, it's going to evolve a little bit, but I really like uh, being able to dump everything in like one big long list. <laughs> yeah. It took me a little right. bit to get over that, but, um, now, now it's there and I've got quick ad just appending things to the top of that list and, uh, just using the filters to, to resurface all that stuff. What does, how does clarify fit into this? Is this like tasks that you're not certain where they go yet, so it's there, or is it something completely different I'm not thinking of? Yeah, that one I'm not entirely sure about, but uh, the way I'm thinking about that is there's still a little bit of ambiguity around what this exactly is. So like the ones that I have in my clarify section here are like figure out, um, well, I guess spoiler alert, uh, we are trying to figure out how to do like a paper planner sort of a thing for, for focused. Um, and, uh, so I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. So that needs to be kind of clarified. And then also like the task management system that I've got here, um, this is sort of like, uh, uh, it's still evolving and, but eventually I want to nail it down and I want to create the, the documentation for this, but I can't do that obviously while it's still in flux. So it's still kind of fluid, I guess, is the way I would describe that category. Interesting. I have like, uh, I, so I tend to use reminders lists uh, and have been for a while now. Lots of reasons for that. But I have one that's called to research. Basically, it's stuff I need to go down the internet rabbit hole of how does this work? What products should I be using? Shouldn't I be using? What hardware should I be buying or not buying? Uh, how does one even, I don't even know, how does one store flower bulbs over the winter you know sometimes it's silly stuff sometimes it's super important but i have a list of those things because otherwise i will just go research them immediately and that's a bad day as in <laughs> nothing else gets done because i will just research all day long so i do not try to do those immediately but that's what i call it is to research so that seems to help me quite a bit cool this looks really interesting i may steal some of these ideas cal newport do you know what episode it was when he talked about these? Uh, it was, I'm not sure. It might be the most recent one. It might not be. I will for sure uh, put the link in the show notes, uh, but sure. I, I can't remember exactly which uh, which episode it was. Sorry. I'm asking because there was a couple folks that asked the last time we mentioned Cal Newport's podcast. It's like, hey, yeah, he talked about this. Like, where was that? I don't know. <laughs> So I'm asking the question now. <laughs> yeah, the problem is with Kel's podcast, he uh, 
he's he talks about a lot every single episode so it's it's hard yeah. for me to pin down exactly where each idea came from but uh, it's definitely in my regular rotation i like that one a lot yeah he does well with that cool well we should probably talk about follow-up yeah so i have a couple items here one is a carryover from last time which was to do this hidden potential quiz uh from adam grant i went and did this and i completely understand what you mean by this thing looks <laughs> like it's way old school i get where they're like trying to make it look good the part that got me more than anything is i went ahead and did the test just because i wanted to know like what are some of these questions and like the there were a couple questions that i or no, there was one question I didn't answer. I don't remember which one it was, but it was because the answers that they provided as options, like my actual answer isn't any of those. And it mm -hmm. wasn't even close. It's like, wait, so then how, what if I don't do any of those things? Now what do I do? So that was, that was a little bit of a huh moment. Anyway, so for the life of Bookworm, we have known that Joe is a perfectionist and tends to not complete things because he can't do them absolutely perfect, right? Like, this is not an unknown thing. Like, I've known this for a long time. I'm a perfectionist. It causes all sorts of issues. Guess what it tells me? Based on your responses, your strongest character skill lies in being an imperfectionist. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> huh. Okay. And then it's suggestion... Because what's the other thing I do all the time? I constantly research things and I'm constantly trying to learn things, right? And I have to like set reminders or put things on lists so that I don't do that. Guess what it recommends that I do? To unlock your hidden potential, it might be helpful to work toward becoming more of a sponge. That involves expanding your capacity to absorb and adapt to new knowledge. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I don't think you should take this test. And if you do take it, take it for fun, not for actually, you know, learning to do anything because this is not helpful. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I agree. In fact, uh, I don't even think I'm going to put the, the link in the, the show notes this time. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I would not do that because this is, this is nuts. So anyway, that was my first follow-up the other follow-up is one that kind of cropped up this week and uh this is more i guess this is more of an announcement than it is a follow-up sort of thing uh but i had sent mike an email because i know mike's been doing a lot of obviously mike you've been doing a lot with your online business and stuff and trying to get that spun up and i had been thinking about it's like okay are there ways i can help mike and i had kind of noticed like it seems like with bookworm there's a little bit of a how do I say that? Like a lackluster feel to it almost. It seems like there's something just didn't quite seem right. You know, I had the little five episode spell where work made it impossible for me to to record. And Mike did a great job carrying the baton during that time. And well done, Mike. Like very grateful you. to you for uh, pulling that off. Came back and it just hasn't seemed the same since I came back. And... I don't think I can give you clean answers as to why that is. Uh, but what I do know is I sent Mike an email about, you know, maybe this is the time to shut Bookworm down. Is this something that you could take and uh, somehow use like your book notes and use the audience, use something to help with your online business to help you get going, get me out of the way and make it easy for you. Mike was very 
astute and realized that I wasn't actually trying to help him in the process, <laughs> but that for some reason I was wanting to step away from bookworm. And I could not have told you that prior to Mike saying it in that email. And once he said it, I did not respond right away because I was dumbfounded by the fact <laughs> that he noticed this and I did not. <laughs> so it took me a little bit to process that and realize that, you know, with, and we've talked about this many times recently, Mike's life theme cohort, uh, having gone through that and realizing that a lot of what I'm attempting to do with my life involves like music and running sound and helping other people to do the same and helping other people get better at that. The more time goes on, the more I'm focusing on that and the less time I have for uh, things like bookworm and such. So as hard as this is to say for me, it is time I think for me to step away from bookworm and it's not going anywhere. Mike is going to continue that. I'll let him talk about what he knows about that process here shortly. But I, I think it's time that I, I stepped away from it. It's not something I want to do, but I think it's the right, the right call. So at this point in time, like there's lots of other, other things going on behind the scenes as well. But uh, I, I just know that Bookworm has been something that's been a big part of my learning ability. And the what's it been, seven years? Has it been something more like than that? that? Yeah. Seven-ish years that we dreamed this up and started recording every two weeks and releasing books, book episodes. And it's something that uh, I know I've learned gobs. And I'm not going to stop reading. What I read might change uh, a little bit, but uh, I will continue down that process. But I think it's time that I stepped away from Bookworm, but I am very grateful that uh, our community has continued to grow and the feedback you guys have given us over the years. And I, I love seeing Bookworm continue to grow, and I'm glad to know that Mike is going to uh, continue the show. I don't want it to die. <laughs> <laughs> so me leaving, I hope it doesn't cause you know a lot of strife in general, but... Uh, Yes, I, I just want to say thank you to the community. Thank you to all of our listeners. You guys have been great to me. Uh, I think it's simply time that I pass the baton to someone else to, uh, to fill the gap and for Mike to take it and continue to, to grow it from here. So big thanks to all of you for listening. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Joe, for what is this, uh, 186 episodes? Yeah. That's a, a lot of books that we have read and um, just a little bit of behind the scenes, I guess the astute observation that, that you said I made, I don't think it was all that astute. Uh, I just noticed in the email <laughs> thanks, that thanks. you sent <laughs> that there were a couple things that you were particularly excited about. And you mentioned that they were kind of tied to your life theme. I'm in the middle of going through that life theme cohort right now. And one of the things that I tell people all the time is that good is the enemy of the best. And once you figure out that this is really the thing that scratches the itch for me, moves the needle, insert whatever term you want here, uh, it makes it easier to say no to things that are are good. Bookworm is a, a, a good thing, and it is not uh, a failure on anybody's part that you got to a point where it's just not the best use of your time. So I 100% support Joe in the decision to to step away, I totally get it. Um, I, I wish it wasn't happening. Like the other thing I want to say is the future of Bookworm 
uh, the immediate future, the plan is to to do what I did when you had to step away previously, Joe, which was use my internet Rolodex and get some people uh, on to talk about books with me because ultimately that's the thing. Like I just really love talking about these books. And um, the thing that I will miss the most is the chemistry that we have developed over 186 episodes. We are not going to be able to replace that. But I don't think that that means that Bookworm uh, should not exist either. If I did, I, I, if it was going to be degraded in quality enough, I would say it's time to just shut it down. Uh, but I still believe that there is something here. And as I mentioned to Joe in the email, shows transition all the time. You know, I took over for Jason Snell on free agents and that became focused. Steven took over for Katie Floyd on Mac Power users. Those are just two off the top of my head, but I'm sure you could find a hundred different examples of, of shows that have had to go through, go through transitions. So um, we'll do that. We'll figure it out and uh, we'll continue to make it the, the best show that it, it can be. Uh, I really appreciate everybody who shows up and reads these, these books with us. So um, I'm also hoping as we pivot it to like, instead of Joe Bulig and Mike Schmitz running bookworm, you know, Mike Schmitz and friends that uh, every once in a while, Joe Bulig comes back and we can talk yeah. about books again. I, I definitely want to be kept in that list of people <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I want to come back occasionally. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully this is not goodbye. It's just see you later. And yeah, uh, yeah I'm going to do everything that I can uh, to keep the, the podcast going. Which is great to hear. Okay. Before I start breaking down, we should get into these books <laughs> so that I don't, you know, so that I can't record this one because we do still need to cover a book today. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Well, uh, today's book is... Uh, same as ever by Morgan Housel. Weird name for. <laughs> I know, I know. I thought of this <laughs> this episode. <laughs> um, but this is uh, is an interesting book, to be honest. I it came on my radar because a bunch of people that I respect were talking about it, and uh, I had not read anything by Morgan Housel before. Although uh, Morgan Housel has been around for a while, and on the cover it talks about he's the best-selling author of. The previous book he'd written was The Psychology of Money. Are you familiar with that one at all? I have not. I, I saw that he was best-selling author of The Psychology of Money, and I had never heard of it. So I don't know if that means I'm not well-traveled in the scheme of nonfiction books, or he's just in a realm that I don't see. I don't know which it is, but I had not heard of it. Yeah, I think uh, I think I even have this book to be honest, but I had not read it. Maybe I picked it up as a gap book and started it at one point, but um, not familiar with Morgan Housel's writing at all. Uh, so I have no context for what kind of writing that he does. Um, this this book is interesting because there is an introduction, there's a, a conclusion of sorts, which is a bunch of questions, and then there's a whole bunch of shorter chapters, not like Seth Godin short. <laughs> But kind of, right. uh, there's 23, I think, chapters that I outlined in my mind map, although they aren't actually numbered and they aren't broken into sections. So they are kind of like these short essays about uh, a topic. And another interesting thing about this is that at the end of each section, he always has a single sentence which sets the stage for the next one. And uh Sometimes they tie together really well. Sometimes it feels like a, a bit of a, a leap. But I do really like the fact that he sets up the next section with the, the last sentence of the, the previous one. I thought that was a very effective 
mechanism. Um, all that to say that for the structure of this book, I have no idea how to actually tackle it. So what I did is I, I picked uh, for the outline here, we'll talk about the introduction. We'll talk about uh, a couple of the sections that stood out to us. Um, I didn't actually put the questions at the end because that is essentially a question from each one of the sections. It's kind of how I read it. They're loosely tied to the topics. I'm not sure if he actually uses those those uh, questions in the the sections, but that's basically the the purpose that they they serve. So I, I think we don't need to reiterate all of those. But um, the introduction, just to uh, go there quickly, um, this is pretty short, but it's basically talking about how history is filled with timeless wisdom, and the whole like title of the book, same as ever, a guide to what never changes, is the subtitle. I actually really like this premise. Uh, he's basically saying that in a world where things are changing quickly and there feels like there's so much uncertainty, the things that we tend to notice are the things that are changing all the time. But the things that we should really pay attention to are actually the things that stay the same. Uh, those are the things that are going to be the pillars of the the future, and we can learn from from the past, but change is the thing that captures our attention because it's surprising and exciting. Uh, however, what doesn't change is actually more important than what does. And uh, I really like that. Obviously a great way to set up this, this whole book. Yeah. They, he starts off in that introduction by telling a story about a friend of his who's close to Warren Buffett. And they were having a conversation in, where was it, late 2009. So this is when the, like the global economy was just falling apart, completely fell apart. And uh, this friend had asked Warren, you know, it's so bad right now. How does the economy ever bounce back from this? And he had the questions like, "What's what was the best selling candy bar in 1962? Again, this is in 2009. <laughs> and uh, he said it was the Snickers. And what is it today was his question. Snickers. In other words, things don't change as much as you think they do, at least in that realm is what he was referring to. So I think that's a great way to, to set this whole thing up because again, like there are like these timeless principles that do carry over time. So the question is like, how do you use those principles in, in your life? How do you learn from those? And uh, I, I think it's a great way to start the book off for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really odd book to start this, like to do this episode, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, it is and and maybe uh kind of is and isn't. Maybe it isn't. Yeah. I I don't know. What well, time will tell, I guess, but let's go into the uh the first section here. Um I I added this first one to the outline. I I typically don't like to add the the first chapters to the outlines when we got to pick and choose specific ones because I feel like with a book like this, typically they get into the meat a little bit later. However, uh this first section is hanging by a thread, and he shares a, a very personal, uh, a very uh, dramatic story here. So Morgan Housel was, sounds like a very good downhill skier and was part of these teams, and they would go places, and um, they were at one of these hills for this meet or whatever and they were gonna go out and, and ski the day before so they they went out but they were, they were so good that they uh, traditionally like didn't go to the runs that everybody 
used. I, I'm not a skier, so like this kind of was a little bit lost on me. But my interpretation of what he was saying was like there's the open runs, which are the ones that are well groomed and they're kind of for like the beginners. But they were so good that they went to the the less groomed trails. Like there's still trails on like the back side of the the mountain but they uh, aren't open to the public because they're a little bit more dangerous. And he and his friends figured, well, we're such good skiers. Like, we're going to go ski the backside is, is how, how they put it. And uh, the first time that they went down uh, in the morning, there was like a little mini avalanche because of the snow conditions. I forget exactly how he said. I think it was like uh, there was frozen hard snow underneath and then a bunch of lighter wet snow on top of it. Other way Vice around. Vice versa. So okay. they had like six to eight feet of like really light, fluffy stuff. And then they got a like a two or three foot heavy wet snow that went on top of it. Gotcha. So then the heavy stuff on top can break loose and go through. Yeah, that makes that makes more sense. Um yeah. So, anyways, they're skiing and then like they get caught kind of in this mini avalanche, but they kind of all ski it out, get to the bottom. They're like, oh man, that was crazy. And they get back to the the place and they're eating lunch or whatever and then the other two guys like oh we're gonna go do it again and and morgan wasn't scared of doing it but he just for some reason decided no i'm gonna stay back and his buddies got caught in another avalanche and basically they died they they didn't realize anything was wrong until later in the day like why aren't they back yet found a search party eventually found them buried in the, the the snow um very tragic story and the point that he was making here was his decision to stay back. He was like, I don't know why I decided to stay back, but literally if he would have gone with them, he would have been trapped in that avalanche and he would have died as well. So his decision not to go skiing with his friends that afternoon, that ended up saving his life. And uh, the, the larger point is you really don't know the impact that those small, seemingly small decisions can actually make uh, and then kind of at the end of that section he talks about how no matter what looks obvious today it can all change tomorrow so this is kind of a weird first chapter in a book called same as ever about how like literally everything can change um, but what it does is it kind of like shakes you up right at the beginning it's like someone grabs you by the shoulders and jars you awake like okay now that i have your attention <laughs> yeah you know so um I, I thought it was a very important chapter and a very like strong emotional way to start the book i mean after you read that first chapter you want to keep reading and, and finding out what else he has to say so well done when i was in when i was in college i took like a intro to film class it was like one of these electives that you had to take to fill a certain requirement. But one of the pieces of that class was that there were certain movies that we had to watch and then we would discuss. And one of the movies that was an option to watch, and I cannot for the life of me think of the name of this. I've tried for years to recall what the name of this movie is, but I can't find it. And it, it's a story of uh, a young woman who's in her apartment. It's a very mundane sequence. She gets up, she makes breakfast, she goes down the flight of stairs, she walks across town to her workplace. That's the end of the story. However, that same story repeats, I think it's 12 times, and each time something is 
minutely different. One time she forgets her office keys. So then she has to come back and then she ends up meeting a guy. One time she accidentally spills coffee on her uh, kitchen table. So then she has to wipe it up. Takes 20 seconds, right? But then she was slightly behind her schedule, which then meant she got stopped by this light. And then she met this guy or she got hit in one case. Like it went from this wide spectrum of she ended up meeting the guy that she ends up marrying to she was killed in a car accident. Like it's that wide ranging, but the time that changed from the time her leaving her apartment was 15, 20 seconds each time. Wow. So I just remember that very astutely because it, it struck me that these real minor details can change the timing of things so much. Like, like it can change the sequence of events so much that you just don't realize what's going on. And this happens all the time. I was immediately brought back to that when I read this chapter because as much as this is about how things never change, like it's good to know that you know one minor change can make a huge, huge difference. So, yes. Yeah, and that actually kind of is a, a great place to segue into the next section. So the next one I want to talk about is uh, section three. And these aren't actually numbered, but I, I numbered them in my, my outline here. But the third section is on expectations and reality. So you've got the idea of the, the small differences producing the larger outcomes. But then this chapter kind of talks about how if you really want to be happy, the first rule of happiness is low expectations. <laughs> and I think that there's something to this. Uh, there's a quote here from Montesquieu that he shares that if you only wish to be happy, this could easily be accomplished. But we wish to be happier than other people, and this is always difficult, for we believe others to be happier than they are. <laughs> Uh, and the point that Morgan makes here is that the world isn't driven by greed. It's actually driven by envy. We want to be better off than the other person. And so those expectations, those alter how we interpret our circumstances. And, and we can totally see how like we get used to things at a certain level. And you know, you get a you get a raise in your your job and you've got a, a new level you're at financially and at first you're really grateful and this is awesome and then six months later you're like they're underpaying me again <laughs> you become accustomed to things and then you immediately start looking at people who are just a little bit further than you are so this isn't directly tied to the idea of being content or gratitude but i think uh, that's where my mind went when i read this he talked about how the 1950s are kind of viewed as the, the golden age, right? They're a happy time because no one lived uh, exorbitantly better than their neighbors. Everyone was kind of on the, the same level there. Um, and then also uh, with that, you had just gotten through a couple of periods where things were really, really bad. So people today will look back at the 1950s and they'll say, oh man, that was, uh, those were great times we should go back to living like that. But if you actually compare the way things are now versus the way things were in the 1950s, we're much better off now. I mean, just one thing that he talks a little bit later, but he kind of talks a little bit about it here too, um, is the whole idea of like the advances in medicine and sanitation and just like the death rates were astronomically higher from like really common diseases. Uh, and it was fairly common for like you have a bunch of kids in your family and not all of them are going to make it. Like we don't think about that today. It, it's kind of the, the norm norm has been reset or the, 
the baseline has been been moved, and we just have kind of changed our expectations uh, regarding that. So no specific action item with this. However, as I'm thinking through this, kind of that's the nudge I got was just recognize and be content with the things that are going well and not just constantly wish that that things were better. I think that's kind of my my uh, normal default mindset anyways is to try to tweak the systems and produce better results. So it was definitely a, a good reminder for me. I immediately thought of the book, The Gap and the Gain. Yeah. Does cross your mind at all? So Benjamin Hardy and Dan Sullivan, the, the concept of are you focused on the gap between where you are now and where you want to be versus where you are now and where you were. So like that could immediately translate to like the expectations piece, obviously. So I, I don't know. I thought about that and realized that, you know, if you think of your own situation, I've been doing this a lot lately. Like, is my current situation, am I unhappy with it because it's actually a bad situation? And that's an exaggeration of what I'm referring to. I'm just talking about like minor situations in this case. So if I'm thinking of a, a current situation and I think it should be a lot better, I tend to be unhappy with it. But if I think about how much worse it could be, I'm fairly happy with it. <laughs> like It's the exact same situation, but your perception on which side of that coin you're on can completely alter the way that you perceive it. So I, as much as like, this is something like, man, I wish I had a really good action item from this. I don't, other than just, again, be aware of it, which I feel like is what we did with the gap and the gain. It's like, this is just something you need to be aware of, and it can make a big difference. For sure. All right. Uh, well, I guess we can go on to the next one then. Uh, the next one is number six, so we're skipping ahead a little bit here. But um, number six is titled Best Story Wins. And uh, I... This, this section was basically what I thought it was, but it was also way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, this was a good one. This was a so good one. for context. I believe in the power of story. Uh, I think I've shared the story previously about how when I was going through Toastmasters and I was doing the humorous speech competition. Eventually, I got to the district finals and I got connected with a guy named Aaron Beverly, who has since gone on to win the world championship of public speaking. But one of the things that he told me when we were doing some coaching was he encouraged me to build a story file, which is basically all of these stories in a notes app. He mentioned Evernote at the time. Obviously, now it's in Obsidian. But um, you've got these different stories, and you've got different versions of the stories. So you've got like a real short version. You've got a longer version. And then when you need to stand up and give a speech, you have that stuff that you can draw on, and you have different versions of it based on the, the context. You know, you're elevator pitch versus the the bigger story, that, that kind of thing. Um, and this, uh, so this chapter is kind of loosely based around like, yeah, the stories are the things that really people are connected, connect with talks about how stories are always more powerful than statistics because there's too much information for people to sift through all the data, but they connect emotionally with the stories. But the story that he uses in this chapter, and he's got stories with all of these, but the story he uses for this chapter is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. But well, the interesting detail here, and there's lots of like this sort of framing around these stories, which Morgan Housel is really, really good at, is that wasn't the speech that he was planning to give. Like Everyone knows yes. that speech. It's a famous speech. 
but that's not what he was going to say. <laughs> and I don't know all the details with this, but the way Morgan tells it is he's up there, he's got his paper, and he's about to give this canned speech. And then somebody in the the crowd behind him is like, tell him about the dream. you know. And then he launches into, I have a dream, and none of it is written down on the paper in front of him. It's just a really emotional story to to him. And uh, those are obviously the the best stories. Um, and, and like, there's a whole bunch of stuff we could unpack from that. Just the fact that like, when you're telling a story, you don't want to have all the facts. You don't want to have it all written down. You don't want to have your story dependent on you know a single finely crafted transition sentence as you go from this section to the next section. You, it's just gotta gotta flow. And uh, I think like that's that's really great. But stories. Uh, help you in terms of getting your point across to a larger group of people is one of the things that I I teased out of this. And uh, one of the questions that he asked here that I really found profound was, who has the right answer that I ignore because they're inarticulate? So on the flip side of this, you know, on one side, you do you want to become a better storyteller. But the other side, and this is kind of the surprising piece to me, is like there are people who have the information and the answers to what you you are seeking and you might ignore them for whatever reason, you know, what they look like, what they sound like. And uh, again, not necessarily an action item associated with this, but kind of an, enc- an encouragement to uh, dig a little bit deeper, go beyond the surface with some of this stuff. Cause I realize that I tend to do that a little bit too, you know, just kind of tune out because I don't think the answer can come from a specific source, but really the answers can come from anywhere if you're looking for them. Yeah, another one of the stories that he tells here is about there was a an anthropologist who wrote a review of a a uh, a young author's book and said that uh, basically the book doesn't really have anything new and what he does have is questionable as far as accuracy goes. <laughs> However, this book is uh, a bestseller and is one of the most successful anthropology books of all time. This is Sapiens <laughs> that we're referring to. People love that book, and how many times has it been recommended, and how many times have we skipped it on Bookworm? It's up to you <laughs> to now choose whether you're going to do it or not. But uh, it, it's not really, from an anthropology stance, according to this guy, it's not that great. However, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the author... Uh, is just really good at telling stories. He just did a very good job of explaining the anthropology background in story format. So like that's that's what we're talking about. So if you're really good at telling stories and you're uh, excellent at communicating something through story, that's the one that can win. So uh, having a story file sounds great. I don't know when I would use that, but I feel like <laughs> telling stories is way better at getting a point across than anything else. Yeah, well, I definitely have application for this. I feel um, getting a little bit more consistent with YouTube has uh, stretched me a bit, but I realize that it's easier for me to make those videos when I have a story angle to it. Like this is, and, and a lot of, it doesn't have to be as complicated as you maybe think it it is. Like you don't have to have some sensational story associated with it. A lot of times a story is just like, this is the problem that I was facing and this is what I'm doing to, to solve it. Like the task management we, uh, we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. 
Like that's a story. And to some people, that story is going to be really boring. But to the people who are watching my videos, they're probably going to love it. So, <laughs> Right, right. Like here, here's an example. So part of the reason I'm on Apple Reminders now versus like OmniFocus or using Obsidian is because I had realized that one of the things I struggle with is it's not visible to me at all times. And even if it's on my phone, yeah. it's not easy to get to. So I was trying to do something on the stage at work for setup. And I recalled that there was something else I needed to do on the stage. And it, it just didn't work. Like I couldn't find it in the, the system that I had. And I had pulled out my phone, was looking through it. But the problem was I had pulled out my phone and was theoretically looking for it and noticed that I had, you know, five missed text messages and a couple missed phone calls. So then I was like running through all of that. The next thing I knew, it'd been like an hour and a half of me like sitting through like text conversations and, you know, ending up on the phone. And like that was not my intent. Now, those were all things that needed to happen. It was just the wrong time. Because what happened then was somebody else needed to come in to use that room. So then I wasn't able to finish what I was doing and I, I got completely derailed. So that's actually one of the Genesis stories for why I have an Apple Watch now. Because I needed a way to be able to check those tasks and what I need to do without that distraction of being sucked into the phone piece. But in order to make that work well, I needed to use Apple Reminders to make that seamless and get into that full ecosystem. So thus, I'm in on Apple Reminders versus OmniFocus and Team because of the easy integration and such. So there's a, there's a quick story I just told you about the task management system I'm on, and I hope that was more interesting than me just saying, yeah, it just it's easier for me to get it on my watch. Like, well, <laughs> why? Like, you, you can understand it better if I tell you a story about it. Exactly. All right, the next section, uh, we're going to jump ahead here a little bit, is number 11, Overnight Tragedies and Long-Term Miracles. And I picked this one because uh, I think there's a really important concept to be understood here, which really is at the, the genesis of a lot of the sensationalized information that we are exposed to every single day which is uh, that good news is typically invisible, but bad news is visible. Bad news is what did, what did happen. Good news could be what didn't happen. And when you recognize that we are in an information age and uh, there are all of these sources that are providing us information with the intention of using that information to capture our engagement because that's going to drive profit for them. You can kind of see how this flywheel is uh, designed to keep us anxious. <laughs> so there's obviously like a whole social dilemma aspect from this, uh, but that's not the only thing to be gleaned here talks about how good news comes from compounding, and that always takes time. But bad news often comes in the form of a, a loss in confidence or a catastrophic error, and that can happen in the, the blink of an eye. And he uses a quote from, I forget the person, but like a reputation takes 10 years to build, but you can lose it in an instant. Like that's really the, the concept here. And that's not just a, a dire warning, like watch out because if you're not careful, you're going to throw it all away. Uh, really the takeaway for me from this 
is to continue to do the things that you know to do. Um, the reason that things are going to take longer to develop when they are the good things is that growth was always going to fight against competition that is going to slow its rise. I thought that was a pretty profound statement when I, I read that. And it's totally true. It's why the, the compound effect, you know, you don't see the immediate gains right away. Uh, but it also applies to technology. He mentions that new technology isn't immediately recognized for its full potential and instantly adopted by the masses. Sometimes it takes uh, quite a few years for things to be uh, broadly accepted. And then we look back and we wonder how we ever lived without this thing. And when you do that, you can look back and be like, oh, well, obviously, if I had been around when the internet was invented or whatever, you know, insert your favorite technology here, you'd be like, well, I would have recognized this because I can totally see now how it benefits me in all these ways. But no, you you wouldn't have. <laughs> that's just the the nature of the process. So I feel like that's what this chapter does really well, is it kind of explains the, it adds new context for me anyways, to the whole process of growth, which uh, I think cultivates this confidence to just keep going and, and to be consistent. I think it, at the beginning, he talks about it's Warren Buffett that says it's 20 years to build a reputation and 15 minutes to lose it. Mm, so, okay. But, you know, that, that concept is one that <laughs> it does make a lot of sense. I would probably argue that it takes less than 15 minutes in today's world because things have accelerated so much faster. The social media side of it has made it much easier to. Uh, to have <laughs> detriments happen. Uh, yeah. Think about the number of like stock prices falling because a company makes an announcement. Like it, it's like instant that that can happen. So it it's a delicate balance that you end up walking on in today's world because of the social media phenomenon. And as much as we see the benefits of social media and things with it, like obviously the beginning of Bookworm started through Twitter. So that's how Mike and I got connected. Because of you know some of the positives that come with it, it's easy to lose track of those because you can see all of the negative stuff, and it's more fun to talk about the negative. Like we're we're we tend to be drawn towards that negative because it's like a fear avoidance sort of thing. Like you're you're trying to avoid negative things happening to you, so you're drawn to them so you can understand them better, so that you don't have those issues like that. It's just part of the mechanism that goes on. So because of that, it's very easy for us to be drawn to all the the bad sides of it. And then because the good sides aren't talked about as much and we're not as drawn to them, you just don't notice them as much. Thus like these long-term miracles that he's referring to, one of which was uh, heart disease and deaths uh, caused by heart disease and how we've gotten better like we've eliminated heart disease issues by 1% over I forget how many years it was. And that's a long-term miracle. Like we've saved millions of people's lives because of understanding heart disease, but you won't like, you wouldn't put that on the news. Hey, we got 1% better at yeah. heart disease this year. Uh, cool. Like we'll kind <laughs> of gloss over that. But if you said we got 20% better at heart disease over the last 20 years, it looks a little more impressive, but people like you're not going to notice that until after the 20 years. Like you can't say, "Hey, in 20 years we'll be 20% better." Like you could do that prediction, that's great, but how many people are going to like, "Yeah, uh -huh, sure. Yeah, prove it." <laughs> like that's that's kind of the and there's even a section on that a little bit later. But I I do think like if you're willing to understand these long-term pieces over time, like 
yeah, it does make a big difference. You just have to be willing to look for it. Yeah, I've got a, a maybe a different application of this too, which is more um, pertinent and recent for me. Is uh, this is the the path for a creator? <laughs> I have uh, at my office here. I got this mug from uh, is it Jack Butcher, the Visualize Value guy. And it basically shows like the exponential growth curve, but at the very beginning of it, it's like a whole bunch of really tiny ticks. And then it's not till the end that it goes yeah, up totally significantly. Spikes. Yeah. And I like that because it's, it's a, an encouraging reminder to me to just keep going. And I am like seeing the growth in my creator business. When I first started May or June, uh, it, I had roughly, 2000 people on the email list and then I started sending emails regularly and it actually went down a little bit that always happens when you decide you're going to start sending emails again and then uh, I started posting regularly to to YouTube and that has kind of compounded more recently um the first video that I published you know it did okay but the second video did a little bit better. Plus I was still getting some views from the previous one and the third one, you know, so that stuff kind of, kind of compounds. Um, and you have to consistently like make good stuff. Obviously the quality needs to, to be there, but, um, I don't think I, I told you this, Joe, I am officially a YouTube partner now. <laughs> woot, woot, party time. Yeah. Well, not really. I mean, I'm not getting ad revenue yet. That happens at 4,000 hours. I crossed 3000 hours, but I should be at 4,000 probably by the end of the, the year. Um, and even then it's going to be like a 10 cent check for the first one I, I realized, but <laughs> still, <laughs> but, um, I've gone from, you know, 1800 email subscribers to now it's about 3,300 and almost 2000 YouTube subscribers, but that has been a slow burn. And there were definitely points where it's like, is this doing anything? Does anybody care? <laughs> you don't notice the big spike on a specific day. But slowly over time, it kind of inches upward. And that's kind of the point I'm at right now is I can look back at the graph and I can be like, oh, at the beginning, you know, when I started YouTube videos, I was getting a couple email signups a day. Then it became five. Then it became 10. And then it became 15. And it's not every day, but it kind of averages out. You can kind of see it if you take a long enough look, the, the, the curve there. So you need to just be consistent with it. Um, and... I feel like reading this chapter, it would have been helpful for me to read this back in in September when yeah. I was going through the the doldrums is how a mentor of mine described it one time. <laughs> like that's definitely a real place. And I was definitely feeling uh, a bit discouraged and you're because you're looking for some sort of sign that this is the right thing. Ultimately, if you know it's the right thing, which I did, you know, I had enough people telling me like this is the right thing to do, this is good stuff, just trust the process. Um but when you're like scrambling and you're trying to figure things out, you're, you're looking for that immediate feedback. It's not going to be there. You have to just do the right things. And when you do the right things over time, those are going to produce the results that you're, you're looking for. Just takes time. It does take time. Uh, let's go to the next section here. Uh, the next section is called Elation and Despair. And I picked this one. Because uh, I feel like there's a yin and a yang here. Like there's a balance that needs to be struck between these these two. And it's not maybe obvious. Um, 
I think generally speaking, you ask anybody, they would say, uh, I either am a natural optimist or I would like to be a natural optimist. And there's a framing in this chapter that I feel helps uh, create a balance between these two perspectives. And he mentions that you should plan like a pessimist, but dream like an optimist. And he ties this back to the best financial plan being to save like a pessimist and to invest like an optimist. So that's like translating it from the financial world to the everyday world. But I feel like that is a really, uh, I never heard that before, but it, it instantly clicked with me. You want to save so that you have something to fall back on if stuff goes sideways but also, if you are just being pessimistic, you're not going to invest in the markets, which are going to provide the 10% annual returns, which are going to compound and produce the, the, the real bulk of any sort of financial fortune, if that's the thing that you're, you're trying to build. So I immediately started thinking about you know, how do I apply that, not just uh, financially, but where have I been like too pessimistic and uh, where do I need to invest basically um, where do I need to to dream? Things like that. Um, and he does a great job of kind of translating it from these different realms because he talks about how progress requires optimism and pessimism to coexist. And then he goes into the James Stockdale story, which we've heard before. I think that was good to great. We talked about that, where uh, James Stockdale said that the ones who didn't make it out of the, the prisoners of war camp uh, were the ones who were the optimists because they believed they were going to be out by Christmas. And then when they weren't out by Christmas... They were heartbroken, and that was the beginning of the end. Um, he talks about this idea called depressive realism, which is the idea that depressed people have a more accurate view of the world because they're more realistic about how risky and fragile life is. I think you know that makes sense, and I agree with that, but also I don't think you want to stay there. Like That's obviously just one perspective, and you want to balance that. And he even says that the ideal perspective here is to be a rational optimist. And um, I'm kind of curious, you know, not just what you think of this this chapter, but where do you find yourself on this spectrum? I think I'm I'm typically a little bit more towards the pessimist side. So reading this, I need to uh, follow my own advice. I mean, we talk about this in the life theme cohort. I know this to be true, right? I need to focus on the the dreaming part, and I need to be more optimistic about. Yeah, I could I could do those things, because if I look back on my journey, you know, when from when we started Bookworm seven, eight years ago, uh, I'm doing things that I never thought I would be doing at the beginning of that, <laughs> that journey. So I even have some like recent evidence I can lean back on, but still my brain has trouble just running with that sometimes. I need a, a little bit of a push in that direction. Yeah, the, the immediate example I can think of is like, because I'm with you, I tend to be on the pessimist side of things, which can be a bit of an issue at times because you don't always see the positive side of it. So to go back to this life theme thing and part of what I've been working towards is that I, I want to be at the skill level from running a sound, uh, running a soundboard and running live events to the point where I'm capable of running for a 5,000 person venue. The, the problem with that is that that takes a lot of skills that I don't currently have. Like I'm getting there, but I have a long ways to go. And it's easy for me to get to a point where I realize, like, this is just going to take too long. Like, it's just going to be a pain. And it's probably not going to ever pay off. And it's going to have hours that I don't like. And it's going to have, and like, and you see how this can go? Like, it snowballs. Yeah. And 
yet whenever I turn around and actually run an event, even if it's for you know a hundred people, uh, if it takes any form of like skill to pull off the sound environment correctly, like I absolutely love doing that. So like I need to focus on that piece and like some of the difficulties. Yeah, I can work through those and. That's part of what we'll talk about next. But yeah, the, the difficulty side of it is one that I need to embrace and look on the bright side of that. If I'm willing to embrace like both sides of that coin where it's like, yes, it's going to be a little difficult at times and, and I know it can be hard, but at the same time, like these are all the positives that can come with that. Like that's the zone I need to sit in. I, I immediately, when you brought up the Stockdale thing, I was thinking about um, uh, Victor Frankel with Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. And how, like, the ones who didn't make out were the optimists. Well, Frankel talks about that with the concentration camps, how the people who thought, yeah, we're going to be out by Christmas, like, they're the ones who died, like, shortly thereafter Christmas because it didn't come true and they just lost all hope. So, yes, I think this is uh, very important and life-saving <laughs> important at times. Uh, and yet I think it's probably one, of, at least for me, it's one of the more difficult things to get my head around as far as like, how do I actually implement that? And what is it that I need to be aware of in order to actually follow through on that and not just pay lip service to it? So that's the part I'm kind of struggling with. I, again, I don't know how to take an action item on that other than just be aware of it. <laughs> right. Well, that's actually a perfect place to go into the next one I want to talk about. So one of the things that you could do if you're going to take action on it, is you could recognize that it's supposed to be hard. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, this, going back to the, uh, the story I shared about the the creator journey, you know, this is something, again, that I should have kept more in the front of my mind that it was going to be difficult. It was definitely harder to get to the point where I am now than I thought it was going to be. And I'm still not where I want to be. But just for context, I guess, in the creator world, if you grow the email list big enough, that is the thing that drives the the revenue when you've got the products to sell and things like that. Having a big enough, uh, specifically email audience, it's great to have people who are following you on the other on the other platforms. But historically, like if you sell anything, emails the the way that you you sell it. So that's always been in the back of my mind is like ten thousand email subscribers, and. Uh, Getting to 3,300 and I believe 5,000 will be maybe a little bit quicker. Um, but to this point, you know, it's definitely been slower than I thought it was going to be. But again, you can see the compound effect kicking in. So if it's supposed to be hard and everything worth pursuing comes with a little pain, then you just got to push through it. The trick is not minding when it hurts is, is how he puts it in this section. Uh, he talks about how hacks are appealing, but they rarely exist and that the right way is the hard way. <laughs> so I think this has a lot of application for just about anybody who's trying to do anything worthwhile. Um, but there's one thing specifically that I wanted to talk about in here because he mentions that an essential skill is identifying the right amount of nonsense to endure while you're getting ahead. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't help but think back to the conversations we had about day jobs and corporate and work environments and even some of the feedback that we've gotten like well it's cool for you guys but you know I'm in this situation I can't possibly change it like this is where I've worked and this is 
how my boss does things and just is what it is. It's not necessarily it is what it is. And that's always kind of been the advice that I've given people is like, well, it would be very difficult to change your job, but you could change your job. You could go get another job. You could decide to do something else. People do that all the time. And I empathize with the fact that it is very difficult to do that. But again, Morgan Housel, like he does so often in these these sections, he kind of just shines a light on like where the the decision actually gets made with this is that we all have this line <laughs> and some of us are like, nope, I'm not going to tolerate any nonsense. And the minute that I get in that sort of situation, you know, I'm, I'm out. I probably lean a little bit too much that way. <laughs> but there are other people who lean too much the other way where it's just like, well, this is the, the, the way it is and, and I'm, I'm stuck here. So Morgan kind of enables both of these parties and is like, well, you know, you're not necessarily stuck there. You can change your situation, but you also don't need to quit the minute that somebody does something that you feel like is wrong. <laughs> you got to find the balance there. And I feel like and everybody's going to have maybe a little bit different mix in terms of like what's a little bit too far one direction or the other. But just the way that he articulated this, I thought was pretty brilliant. You got to figure out what is the right amount of nonsense that you are going to endure. And then at some point you say, okay, that's, that's too much. I'm not going to put up with that amount of nonsense and you go <laughs> find something else. But uh, the, the takeaway for me, I think, was that there's always going to be a little bit of that nonsense, no matter what you do, no matter who you surround yourself with. Um, and you do need to learn to kind of navigate it and, and deal with it to a, to a certain degree. I think we're a society that loves shortcuts. Like we, we like the get rich quick schemes. We like the, you know, the promise of Bitcoin making me rich. And we, we love that type of thing and that story. But, you know, I feel like there's a lot of problem with that as well. Like, you know, and obviously, like, it's supposed to be hard. Like, if you put in the work and do it the hard way, yes, it's going to take longer in most scenarios. But, I feel like the character building that you get out of that is well worth it as well. Uh, you know, the people who have put in the time to earn, you know, wealth appreciate it significantly more than those who sign a contract and instantly have $100 million. And the way that people spend that money in both scenarios is drastically different. This is not new information for you, I'm sure. Like, this is that's something we know. People who win the lottery typically go bankrupt. Like this is a common, common thing. So I think part of that is just being willing to endure the difficulty. Uh, the question is, like you're saying, is like how much is too much? And uh, I know that you know, having been in corporate and worked in those scenarios, like this, just there's a lot of nonsense that happens. And if you're okay with with that, and for the sake of a paycheck, sure, go for it. Uh, I can't handle that level of nonsense, <laughs> and uh, have stepped away from that. Obviously, I tried to go back to it at one point on contract, and that was even worse. Because then, at that point, my level of dealing with nonsense was much less than it was prior. So, just be aware that level can change as well. Yeah. Uh, next one is section eighteen. And that is harder than it looks and not as fun as it seems. And I don't have a, a whole lot from 
this section, to be honest, but I think it, there's some very important things to be teased out here uh, because we've heard before that on social media specifically, people tend to share the highlights. And that's that. there's an element of that in here uh, as well, that everything always looks better from the outside and that everyone is dealing with problems that they don't advertise. But the big thing I took away from this is that most people will not talk about what scares them. And uh, I don't have an action item associated with this either, but again, a nudge in the direction to talk about the scary stuff. Because every time I do that, I find that there are other people who are scared of the same things and are dealing with the same things. And just by being the one who's actually willing to say the quiet part out loud, uh, it helps everybody. So uh, I, I think that's a, an important uh, perspective to have. And then the other thing in here, which uh, I liked is that everything is sales. And uh, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people, I've even had conversations with people who are like, well, I just don't want to be a, a salesperson. I'm not very salesy and tell them, well, you're married. So you sold yourself at least once. <laughs> yeah. It's not a bad thing. Sales is just the ability to communicate to people that you're willing, you're able to to take them where they want to go. Uh, it's essentially a, a form of of leadership. It doesn't have to be the the sleazy used car salesman who's trying to sell you a lemon. That's obviously the the negative application of this, and that's typically where where people's mindset goes. But that's not really what it is. Um, and it is also kind of like. A little bit tangential in this this chapter, like it's not really anchored on that idea of like harder than it looks and not as not as fun as it seems. But it was something that uh, that stood out to me. They, he has a like a brief story in here about how, you know, I think it was a was a coworker. I don't know. Somebody he was talking to said that they were thinking about leaving their company because their current company was bad at communication and they had a lot of internal struggles and they were looking at going to a competitor and. He's like, well, how do you know the competitor doesn't have those problems? Like, well, they just look like they're completely put together and they produce a lot more. Like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better at communication. They just maybe have a few people that are better at tolerating it and do good work despite it. Like, that may be all that's going on, but you don't actually know that they're better at that. And uh, he, the last paragraph before he has his like lead into the next chapter. Uh, he says, everyone's dealing with problems they don't advertise, at least until you get to know them well. Yep. Like, yep, 100%. Grass looks greener, but it looks greener from afar. <laughs> so I know, like, <laughs> take that analogy, sure. Like, there are times when people have pulled into my lawn and said, man, your grass looks really good in the front lawn. It's like, really? It's like patchy and brown in spots. <laughs> and then I realized that if you look at it from the road, or as you're pulling into the driveway, you actually can't see that. Like there's spots there that are not good, but all you see is like the greener stuff. It's on the edges where, you know, the water flows down the driveway and waters it really well <laughs> inadvertently. <laughs> like you can see that really well and it looks pretty good, but when you get closer to it and actually get up on it, it's not as great as it, it looks. So even from a lawn perspective, sure, grass is always greener, but just walk up closer to it. It might not be as nice as you think it is. <laughs> right. Okay, the uh, last official section I've got here is uh, number 22, which is trying too hard. So I feel like the sections that I picked to discuss 
in this outline have kind of all been sort of tied to it's going to be harder than you think and you just got to stick with it and eventually it'll work out. So this one kind of stood out to me because it's kind of in contradiction to that. But this also is very relevant for me uh, and probably some other people too because I tend to make things harder than they have to be. Uh, And the very first thing he says in this chapter is that there are no points awarded for difficulty. (laughs) So we like those big comeback stories and we conquered the, the thing, but really the best version of this is you never had to fight the thing. Um, one, of the, one of the examples he shares in this, this chapter is that you can't die from cancer if you don't get cancer in the first place. But the, the healing is more um, attractive maybe than the prevention. And uh, with taking that example out of the picture, that principle I feel like is really important. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of, of cure. So prevention is the, the simple version. Um, and another way to say this, uh, I've heard it said that it's easier to sell medicine or, to, or pain reliever than uh, vegetables, different versions of that. You know, like yeah. people want the pain to go away, but if you do the right things, you won't have the pain in the first place sort of a, a deal. And that you obviously can't escape all of the pain, but that's the big takeaway for me is like, don't look to make it more difficult than it needs to be. Um, and if you're looking at other people's stories and, and the things that they've gone through, I, I think there is a little bit of a bias towards the complexity because he talks about how complexity sells better. Complexity, he also says that when we're like crafting our own solutions and things, complexity gives the comforting impression of control. That's the one that really hit home for me is like just using my obsidian test management thing at, at the beginning as an example. Is there a simpler version of that that I should probably get to at some point? Yes, I'm sure there is. But the fact that I have 12 different lists, that feels comforting. I know that the minute I start trying to use all 12 of those lists, it's not gonna, it's gonna fall apart. <laughs> because the simple thing that has the least amount of friction is gonna be the thing that actually uh, allows it to, to stick. So. I got to fight through that. You know, I got to work through that. Um, the big takeaway, again, not an action item, is just recognize that uh, this thing maybe feels right because of the complexity, but know that in the long run, that actually is working against me. So make it as simple as you you can. And then uh, the length of the thing also kind of signals effort and thought, thoughtfulness to a lot of people. That's why a lot of the books that we read are 200 pages, I feel. Um, a lot of them don't need to be that long, and, and we've gotten pretty good over the years of of figuring that out, distilling it down. Like, yeah, this could have been twenty pages, um, but you totally get it, you know. Too when when Morgan points it out, it's like, hey, the reason that a lot of them are like that is because the fact that someone picks it up and there's two hundred pages on the Pomodoro method <laughs> implies that they really know a lot about it. Uh, not necessarily. So maybe uh, use that as a uh, uh, use that as a, another perspective when you're trying to filter through things as well. Recognize that that's something that people will will tend to do, and and don't anchor on the the, the length as a evidence of the the research or the quality of the the material. I I think the piece from this that really struck me is that whole simplicity versus complexity concept because the more that like in the audio world or in the networking world, tech world in general, like you can make things ridiculously complex. 
Like I can put together what we call signal chains for how you pass audio from the beginning to the end to get it out the speaker system. Like I can do a lot of fancy stuff on that. But most of it is handled by how I place the microphone in front of the person or the instrument. Like if that's not right, the rest of it just doesn't matter. It's literally put the microphone in the right spot. If you do that, <laughs> you've solved like 90 to 95% of the problems you're going to run into. Like it's that simple. But we like to say, you know, I got a high pass filter on it. I got a, the EQ. I got the compressor. I got all these things. Got the plugins. Like I got all these things. But if you have a really good source and you put the mic in the right spot, I, I mean, that's the bulk of it. <laughs> like you can do all the other stuff. And if you're going to do a really good job, you should do all the rest of that stuff. But you're, you're, benefit isn't near as large as putting the mic in the right spot like it's that simple but again we like to make it complex that's just one example you can give you tons and tons and tons of these time management task management all of these things all right uh i don't think we need to cover the questions section do you no i don't think so just ask the questions and then answer them <laughs> agree although i do like the fact that there are questions at the, yeah. the end of the book so I guess then that takes us to action items, and uh, I don't have any. I'm assuming you don't either. <laughs> I don't either. It's it's one of these like just be aware thing. But yeah, I don't have any for this. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll go on then to style and rating. So uh, my book, I will go first. And uh, I really like this book. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I feel like it exceeded my expectations. Um, I like the format. I like the the small-ish sections. They're not tiny, like I was saying. You know, this is not Seth Godin. Uh, it's still about a 200-page book, just under if you take out the questions section. So, still a little bit of of, uh, of meat here, but. Um, this is really this is really like the perfect format I feel like for Morgan Housel. Again, not familiar with anything else Morgan Housel has done, but uh, the stories are great. The details that he teases out are great. The principles that he kind of highlights and, and teaches in this book are great. I feel like for the most part, there's there, there's no sections in this book whatsoever, but for the most part, there is kind of a unifying thread that connects them all, which is a little bit surprising sometimes when you look at the the titles. And even as we talk through it, you know, we, we ended up talking about a couple things that seem like they're in direct contrast to each other, but they're really not the way that it's put together, I think is done really, really well. And um, I think this is definitely something that the bookworm audience uh, should read. I think uh, if you listen to bookworm and you like the, the majority of the books that we, we talk about uh, this one, you're going to get a lot out of, and it's going to be a fairly uh, easy read. It's going to be a pretty entertaining read, or at least a very engaging read. Let me put it that way. Uh, definitely glad that I read it. Definitely one that's earned a spot on the the bookshelf, and uh, I do think I will come back to it from time to time and consider those those questions. Um, I don't. I didn't have any action items from it. Uh, I guess one that I could have thought about was just like writing down those questions inside of a note in Obsidian, but I don't know. Uh, I feel like uh, this is one that I'll probably revisit from time to time, not to read the whole thing, but just like, oh yeah, I read a, a section about that, or I'm reviewing the mind map 
and get triggered by one of the section titles and I'll go back and, and read that again because it's, you know, eight pages or something like that. Uh, I think it's really good. I'm going to rate it five stars, actually. Uh, I don't think it's the most impactful book that we've ever read, uh, but I do think it is really, really good. And I think there's something in here for just about everyone. Uh, I think the the very premise of the book is different and refreshing and very widely applicable. So regardless of your situation, I feel like uh, you're going to benefit from putting in the effort to read this one. I feel like Morgan Housel does a very good job of laying out the whole book from start to finish. Because like, remember how we started this where, you know, one little tiny change, again, we're talking about being the same over time. One tiny little change can completely throw off the entire history of something. And then we go through this process of telling stories or putting in the time to make something happen over a long period of time. It's going to be difficult to do that. You need to try hard even when it's not fun. By the way, don't try too hard. Like you follow this cadence that I'm talking about. So he's not only done a really good job of telling the stories within the chapters and then helping you get through them, but he's also done it across the entire book. Like you said, like it's rare that you're choosing that first chapter out of a book like this, but he did set up the rest of it really well with that first chapter. It's also kind of odd when we do this to grab the last bit from the book as well. And we usually like would jump to the conclusion. And uh, he did that as well. I think there's one that was past that, but like right there at the end, grabbing that piece as well. So like, again, those are both oddities in, or those are all oddities in how we've, we've covered this. I, I think he's done a great job. Like there's, there's a lot of little stuff here that you can pick up. There's a lot of books that we have covered in the past that cover one of these sections in depth. And if you want to deep dive those, you could grab it and go to it. But as far as like like being aware of how things do and don't change over time, more so how they don't change over time, uh, is incredibly helpful because you know that those principles aren't going to deviate. You can count on the history lesson that they have taught, and you can use that for going forward. So as far as a rating goes, like and how this book is put together and, and what I've gotten out of it, again, I don't have any action items from it, but I think you're spot on. I think it's a 5-0. And I think it's one that, uh, again, I'll reference from time to time. I think you should pick it up and read it. Again, it's not like groundbreaking and it's not like going to completely change your world in its, uh, like by itself. But I think if you put it in conjunction with the number of lessons you're covering, like, I, I guess when I say that, like, the number of lessons that you're getting by going through this particular book is quite large we're probably not going to be the ones that are going to catch as much of the life-changing bits out of this because of the history of the books that we've read. So I think if it's one of, that you're going to pick up and you're only going to pick up one this year, this is a good one to do that. I know we've had a couple of them like that this year where there's like two or three of them. Like, yeah, this is definitely one you need to pick up. This is one of those, I think. But yes, I think it needs to be a 5-0. All right. So last book we do together is a golden book. That's true. <laughs> didn't didn't count on that, but hey, I'll take it. Yep. All right. So I guess uh, this is typically where we do gap books and upcoming books. But to be honest, uh, I don't know exactly what is going to happen um, or what we're going to cover. But I will promise you that in two weeks, there will be another 
bookworm episode. And hopefully I will have uh, someone who can help me talk about uh, a, a book uh, for that, that episode. <laughs> we got a little bit more heads up this time. So yeah. I don't think I'll have to do the, the solo thing. But um, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for a great run, Joe. Certainly. And I'm, again, I'm very grateful for uh, you as listeners. And it, it's been a great run for 186 episodes of Bookworm. And uh, I look forward to coming back from time to time. But again, thank you to everyone who listens. Uh, I will miss you greatly.